So we will go ahead and get started. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Welcome um, to Grace Baptist Church at Castle Woods. Um, No, but um, so before before I kind of got started, I I wanted to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about in this series, this 12, maybe 13, 14, 16 weeks, who knows. Um, But no, um, so basically Christology. Um, So the person of Christ is going to be kind of the focus. Um, And I have actually set up an outline for this series so you kind of know what to expect. Of course, if you've heard me teach before, you know this is tentative and subject to change at any moment. So um, just kind of keep that in mind. Um, So I hope to spend roughly three weeks in theology proper. So when I say that, I just mean basic doctrine of God stuff. Um, uh, I think it's important before we get into Christology to understand, you know, who God is and sort of nail down some characteristics there. Um, three weeks after that on the incarnation, uh, of Christ and three weeks on the implications of the incarnation. So we'll kind of expand from point two, um, uh, into that. And then three weeks, believe it or not. On the Lord's Supper. So that's what I hope to do. Um, But of course, as always, before we start, um, if you want to, um, I have two scripture readings that I want us to do today before we bless our time or ask the Lord to bless our time. Uh, If you want to turn to, uh, if you like, Exodus 3. um, So Exodus 3 13 through 15. And then we'll read, we'll go directly from there to John 8. John 8 and read verses 48 through 59. So kind of a longer reading, but I think it's going to think it's going to help us as we go forward in today's in today's Sunday school. Uh, and then again, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time. So Exodus 3 first, Exodus 3. This is the word of God. Then Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I shall say to them. The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So going to John 8 after that, John eight forty eight through 59. The Jews regarding Jesus, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. 
It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do not know, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for this reading of Scripture. God, help us to understand it. Lord, send your spirit, Lord, that he may illumine our hearts, and Lord, that, that he may teach us um, in all that is said here today. Lord, keep me from error, and Lord, make these things, these um, difficult things, understandable. Lord, we thank you as you prepare us to go into worship. In your name, amen. Okay, so um, thoughts on these two passages, what comes to mind? Yes, very good. Jesus is God. Anything else? John's right, of course, and that's that's the point of the passages. But any other thought? That's right. So he's he's essentially proclaiming godness, right? I mean, that much is evident. Um, what I what I gather from this, and of course, there's 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 a lot, of course, that can be drawn out of both of these passages, um, but. The self-same God who delivered the children of Israel from the hand of the Egyptians walked among us and delivered us from the power of the devil. Um, of course, this is no surprise, right? Correct? We're Bible-reading Christians. We, we know the gospel. Um, but let me, ask a, let me ask a question. As far as human comprehension is concerned, or, or, you know, the limits of, of human comprehension. How is this possible? How is this possible? Think about that. Um, how is it possible that the transcendent God of the universe, I hope you're getting goosebumps by now because I do. Um, if you haven't thought long on the incarnation, I mean, I know it's kind of something that we accept. It's like, yeah, you know, God came in flesh, but... Really think about that. So, so how is it possible that the transcendent God of the universe, the I am who is existence itself and causes all other things to exist, was able to condescend to us sinners? How is that possible? And take on the infirmities of human flesh, yet without sin, go to a wooden cross, and rise as the glorified God-man. I'll take your answers. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this, this to me, as I was thinking about this, this to me, um, at, least, at least in the way other religions would see Christianity, this is, this, is, this is scandalous. This is the most scandalous thing about Christianity, in my opinion. It's like this is something that I think gets other religions in just an uproar because it's like, okay, so you say your God is transcendent. He, he, he exists outside of time and reality. 
um, yet he's able to take on human flesh and tabernacle among you. Tell me how that works. Um, and that's kind of, you know, as we, as we continue this series, we're going to do uh, a, a, a deep dive into those sort of questions, um, I hope. I hope. Um, but why is this important? Why is this scandalous thing so important? Why is it important? So, like, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not just asking rhetorical questions. Participation. What's that? That's where our hope lies. Absolutely. Yes. Why, 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 but, but, so, so we. No other religion has their God coming to earth himself. It's always through some proxy. Muhammad, Abraham. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Exactly. Mormons or something. Right. It had to be that way. For us to be reconciled to God, the mediator had to be 100% God. Yes, all, all, all those great answers, great answers. So, um, again, if you've heard me teach before, I like to um, pick on the Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm, I don't mean it in a mean way, but um, I, pr- I think it provides some good context as to why this is so important. Um, so, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, a little bit of background, or, or a little bit about their Christology, if you don't know already. Um, they believe that Jesus is actually Michael the Archangel. Have you heard of this before? Okay. Michael the Archangel. Okay. And it's not that Michael the Archangel took on human flesh. It's that he, he goes out of existence, per se. I'm oversimplifying <laughs> it. But he goes out of existence and is recreated as Jesus. So what you have is... The, the ceasing of existence of Michael the Archangel and the creation of a man, Jesus. Um, he's a sinless man, a good man, a teacher, um, and all those things. But he doesn't have, like, an angel nature while he's on earth or something like that. He's just Christ, or he's just Jesus. Um, and... Um, of course, there are several problems with that, but I wanted us to, and if you want to uh, follow me on this, uh, I want to uh, read from Hebrews 1. So if you want to turn there, I think it would be beneficial to you. So Hebrews 1, um, and we're going to read some of that and uh, make some observations as to why it's important that we get our Christology correct. And, and as, as was pointed out and as uh, Seth pointed out as well, um, he had to be both fully God and fully man, and those are things we'll flesh out in the future. But um, Hebrews 1. So, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. Become much better than the angels. 
as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Um, for which of the angels, for, which to, for to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I, today I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. You see where I'm going with this? Anybody see where I'm going with this? So he says of the angels who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So from there, skip down to verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So two things, two things here. We have a metaphysical or ontological difference between angels and the Son of God, right? There's a constant contrast between Jesus, the Son of God, and angels. They're fundamentally different, okay? Um, the second thing is their work. Their work, if you didn't see that, their work. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will, ins- who will inherit salvation? What's the job of an angel? What do they do? I mean, just generally. Helping people. Helping people, yes. Praising God. Praising God. And, and, and then saying here, to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So if we apply that, To Jehovah's Witness Christology, angels can't save anybody. They're ministering spirits. They assist in salvation in the sense that that they they minister, but they are not saviors. That's very very important to to understand. And I know, again, I'm I'm, I'm sort of picking on the Jehovah's Witnesses, but, um, but the point is, is that this is why... It is, it, is, it is so important that we have the right Jesus and not the Jesus of our imagination. Okay? The, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses can't save anyone because he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have the appointment, the capacity, the, the being to do so. I don't know how many other ways to say that, but... Um, in other words, we must get Jesus right. We must get Christ right. I know, I know everybody's heard that before. You know, which Jesus are you talking about when we're talking about people? Which Jesus? That, in a nutshell, is what we're seeking to do during this time and during this series. We want to get Christ right, and we want to be as precise as possible so that we can understand and have a deeper love of our Savior. Um, and that kind of leads me into some foundational things before we actually dive into the particulars of Christology. So... Um, there's a problem. Uh, there's a problem. I, I kind of, uh, I, I tried to think of a, a, a clever way to say it, but I couldn't think of anything. Um, it's called, I call it a, the incomprehensibility problem. Okay, so there's a Latin phrase for this. I'm going to throw some Latin at you. Um, so stay with me. Um, uh, the phrase goes like this. Finitum non capax infinity. 
I'll give 10 points to the person who knows what that means. Pretty close, yeah. Yeah, that's it. So the finite cannot contain, comprehend the infinite. Um, why do I say that? Uh, well, let's go to our confession. It confesses the same. Chapter 2, paragraph 1 says, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any of himself. So, again, the question, like we asked before, it's like, how is it that, first of all, the incomprehensible God, the infinite God, the transcendent God, comes to be in human flesh. How's how? You know, I mean, if you haven't struggled with this question, please let me know because I certainly have. Um, but it goes, it goes further than that. You see, because God is transcendent, it should follow that since he doesn't operate with any limitations or within the bounds of what we would call human reason, that he is potentially altogether unknowable, Right? Potentially, yes. I chose my words carefully. Um, So that makes us ask the question, makes us ask the question, how then is it that we do know God? How then is it that we do know God? I'll take your answers now. What he's revealed to us, yes. What he's revealed to us. Yeah, see, we, of course, affirm and practice the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, which means what? Come on, this is a softball. Yeah, by scripture alone. Um, uh, we affirm that, and we do in the same vein of that principle also affirm at the same time the inaccessibility and unknowability of God apart from that revelation, right? And here's the key. Here's... Here's, 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 here's what we must understand. The premise that must and in fact does give us the, the milieu, the, the, the environment for the, at least the Reformed Protestant thought in the way God should be spoken of, in the way that we should talk about him, and of formulating doctrine about him, because in order to formulate doc, doctrine we need to say something, um, is formed with the phrase finitum non capax infinity always in mind. Always in mind. Follow me? Follow me? Follow me? You can say no. And I'll try to explain further. Um, this can, I think, you know, give us an initial sense of like hopelessness maybe. Because um, it's like, wow, I don't know anything you know, about God, but it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. Um, What this does show us is that there must be a scriptural primacy on biblical and supernatural revelation. Yet assumed also in in this is a human reception of that revelation. Is a human reception of that revelation and that it has been accommodated to the limits of human reason and its capacity. Okay? I don't want you to hear that as subject to human reason and its capacity. I mean accommodated in a way that we can understand it. 
Uh, you remember Calvin said that God lists to us like little children, right? That's, that's kind of you know, the same thing. In other words, God condescends and reveals himself in a way that us finite, meager specks of dust can actually understand. And what we're attempting to do, if you really think about it, what we're attempting to do here, at least today, and if I may be a bit more technical, is really give a brief characterization of the nature of the created human intellect, stress on created, created human intellect, and, and, and how it relates to how we conceive or think about God. Everybody follow me so far? Okay. Yes. I'm going to take those all as yeses. Um, the fact is, God knows himself fully and perfectly. In other words, he knows how he sees himself. He knows himself through himself, so on and so forth. But we don't even know ourselves fully, much less perfectly. So it follows that we must be given information about God. That's what Revelation does. After all, it gives us information about God. But it also follows it must be limited or a better, probably a better way to say this is, is, is creaturely. Creaturely. Limited or creaturely conception of God then. And here's a caveat. Like I said before, um, it does not mean that this limited or creaturely knowledge does not give us genuine or true knowledge. Okay. About God. No, it only means that the knowledge is accommodated to our createdness. Okay. Does that make sense? Everybody, ask questions, please, if, if you're confused. I told my wife before I came, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have, I'm going to probably struggle on this one. But anyway, um, so all this is going towards, especially as we get into Christology, all this is going towards what's the proper way to talk about God? How do we speak about God? And there is a proper way to speak about God. So what we're really interested in is then, um, specifically, how do we pull information from the biblical text, for example, or from the evidences of natural revelation, and do it rightly and properly? Now, you may be saying, or at least I was thinking, somebody might be thinking, thinking that somebody might be thinking, um, that uh, that makes sense. Uh, that, well, you just just read your Bible, Richard. I mean, come on. Um, yeah, I mean, and I agree with that, of course, read your Bible. Um, but I would again, I would again uh, point out to uh, groups like Jehovah's Witnesses that read their Bible, that read only their Bible, that do theology as well. And what we have to say then is, well, do they come to the right conclusions? We would say no. Why is that? Well, hopefully we can see uh, here in a few minutes. So the point is, is that when we begin to theologize about the divine essence, the incomprehensible God, there's no doubt that the greatest caution should be employed in our doing so and how we talk about God. But the question, I think, becomes even more important than here. The question becomes more important. What is the appropriate way to use finite human language to rightly describe the infinite. You see the problem here? What's, what's the right way to do it? And that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is a question that will haunt the background of our entire series, or at least the answer to that question will. So, okay, I won't 
keep you in suspense any longer. Um, what are the options? What options do we have on how we're to talk about God? What, what are the options? Um, um, if you're with me so far, if you're, if you're buying what I'm selling here, there is indeed a correct way, I think, to speak about God. Um, so again, what are the options? Um, up till now, I've just been sort of trying to whet your appetite, trying to prepare you for the the, the core of this of this uh, sort of lesson. Um, so um, if you if you are confused, I'm very sorry. Ask me questions afterwards, um, and I'll try to clarify. But this is the part where, that we I think really really need to grasp because it's going to set the tone for the rest of the series. Um, so up to now, I've been given given sort of abstraction. So something a little more concrete. What options do we have if we're going to rightly speak about the infinite God, the incomprehensible God in finite language? Um, um, well, I'll give you some options. And I think that these are pretty much the only three options that I know of. But these will make um, our conceptions or, or what we're going towards a little more concrete. So we have, we have three options, and I'll give them to you. Uh, in uh, a certain order. There is, we could speak of God univocally or univocally. Um, so um, that's option one. Uh, I'll define that. And all that means is the use of a word or words in such a way that they only have one meaning. Okay. So it's like a one-to-one relationship, right? Everybody with me so far? I'll give you some examples. I'll give you some examples. Here's a sentence. Here's, here, here's a comparison. I changed my mind, and I was sorry. I changed my mind, and I was sorry. Okay, and, and that does happen a lot. I do change my mind, and I'm sorry a lot. Um, God changed his mind and was sorry. Okay. That, if we, if we, if we posit... Univocism or univocal language to where changing your mind means one thing. That means God changes his mind in the same way I do, right? It even says that God changes his mind in several passages, correct? Genesis 6 5 comes to mind. He was sorry that he created man and he repented, he repented and was sorry, so you know, the flood comes. The entire book of Jonah is about the, the, uh, you know, the prophecy of Nineveh. God says he's going to destroy it in 40 days. But Nineveh repents. God changes his mind. So what are we to make of that? What are the entailments? What are, we, what are the entailments if we use a one-to-one comparison on language here? relates to us what it means, but in actuality, you couldn't repent because you repent, you have to repent somewhere higher than yourself. That's a good answer. Yeah. You get scripture against itself? You do. Yeah. What does Numbers 23, 19 say? I know you all know this. God is not a man that he should lie, so on and so forth. Um, But what, but what's the ultimate entailment? Like, those are all right. But, like, logically, where does that lead to? Is it off now? Yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, just, try, I'll just try to yell at you. Um, um, 
what are, what are, what are the entailments then? Like, like, where does that logically lead to who God is? God is changing He's changing. He's unpredictable. What? What? Who, 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 what, what? He's a creature. He's a creature. Yeah. So we're so we're starting from what it means for us to change our mind and importing that onto God, right? So we've just violated his incomprehensibility and transcendence. Does that make sense? Okay. An example of some um, of a particular cult group that does this. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Therefore, God walked. Therefore, God must have a body. That's Mormonism, right? So God has a body of flesh. Does God have a body of flesh? Like you said, it pits scripture against itself. It says God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth. Um, just an example. Uh, option number two. So that was the first option. Option number two is the other, other side of the spectrum. There's equivocal speech. Equivocal speech. Um, if you don't know what that is, all it means is this is... This is an easier one. It's the use of a word or words in such a way that they have a completely different meaning. That is, there is no relation between the words used. Um, I'll give you an example here. And and this is what I thought of this morning, so I apologize if it's cheesy. Um, I burn my hand in the fire, and I have done that before. Um, Johnny burned Jack in that foot race. They have absolutely no, no correlation between each other. They mean completely different things. That's equivocal speech. So if we apply this to God, what are the entailments? What's the logical end of that? That scripture is just confusing and useless to us. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's incoherent. I mean, you know... Uh, we wouldn't be able to say anything intelligible about God at all. Um, we would be saying, we could, we, we, we could all be essentially using the same words um, uh, and saying the same thing, but mean something completely different. You know, so this makes God completely unknowable, or at the very least it makes, as John pointed out, Revelation just completely worthless in our Bibles or just an incoherent mass of, of, of words. So, so, so that's out, I hope, I hope we see. So that's out. We don't want equivocal speech. We don't want to talk about God that way. Um, uh, I had an example of this one. Oh, yes, Jehovah's Witnesses again. Sorry, I keep picking on them. Um, the resurrection, the resurrection. So if you know their theology of the resurrection, their resurrection is... Um, they die, um, uh, their body you know, goes to dust, and uh, God, Jehovah, recreates them from his memory. Okay, so you don't technically arrive into eternity with the same body that you had on earth. Okay, that's not resurrection. Uh, we're talking about two different things. They're completely different meaning. What, what we would call that is recreation or something like that. So resurrection for us would be we 
are raised with the same body we were given, but glorified. So um, does that make sense? Okay, so again, equivocal speech is out. Um, There is a third option, luckily. There's a third option. Um, And since I said that there were three options, you know that this is the right one. Um, There's analogical speech, analogical speech. So what this is, um, and you'll kind of have to follow me here, what this is is the use of a word or words in such a way that they don't have the same meaning but don't have completely different meanings either. So it's kind of a middle way. In other words, there's an overlap in some sense. Um, There's an overlap in meaning, but there's also a gap where there are differences. Okay, Analogical speech highlights both the similarities and the dissimilarities of speech. Or put another way, analogical speech does not posit things are one and the same, but it neither posits that they are totally diverse either. Does that make sense? So there's kind of an overlap. It's a middle way, if you will. Um, Examples, examples, once again. The wine, I mean grape juice, the wine, the wine is good. The wine is good. The little boy is good. Okay, think about that one. Example two, God is good. Ice cream is good. Yeah, <laughs> ice cream is good. God is good. Um, so, so there's something in each of these statements that shows us that the word for good is not being used in a totally dissimilar way. Okay. It's not being used in a totally dissimilar way. Yet it isn't being used in a totally unrelated way either. God is good and ice cream is indeed good too. But they're certainly not good in the same way. Yet something about what good means in this form of speech is conveyed to us. Right? Yes? Okay. All right. Yes? yes. Okay. What are, what are the entailments here? What, 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 logically, if we apply this to God, what are, what are the entailments? So we just had the two extremes, I think, spelled out to us. You can end up with a worldly view of God. Okay. Like God is, yeah, I have family members that say, Jesus is a good man. Mm-hmm. They don't mean anywhere near the same way that you would mean that if you knew Christ. Okay. Right. Yes, exactly. So the entailments are um, that it allows us to maintain a create a creature creator distinction. I think that's the heart of the matter. It allows us to maintain a creature creator distinction um, and grant God grant to God his transcendency while at the same time allows us to speak truly about God as his creatures. You see that? And we'll flesh that out more as we actually go into doctrine. Um, but I'm just trying to give you, you know, some, some foundational stuff. Um, proper God speak, based on revelation from both nature and scripture, insist on a language or a way that we talk about God that is thoroughly analogical, I think. Um, 
thoroughly analogical in character and is predicated on the simple fact that, and I kind of of said this, that we are finite creatures and God is not. Further, if, 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 if God is going to speak truly and genuinely to such creatures, he must condescend and accommodate himself to our finiteness. So that's where you have the diversity of meaning that I was talking about. So that makes sense, or, or, or is that too much? Okay, all right. Um, the incarnation is an ultimate example of this. It's not, the only, it's not the only thing about the incarnation, but it is an example of God's condescension to um, our level. Um, lest he remain completely unknowable or just a mere, like, superhuman or something. So we were talking about univicism or univocal speech. Well, well all you have there, log- the logical end of that is you have a creature that's just, like, really exalted and just really powerful, like Superman. Um, a comic book hero or something like that. Where on the other end, you have, you have a being that's completely unknowable that we, don't, we can't really say anything decisive about. Um, so therefore, I, I think that as we move forward in the coming weeks, this type of speech, this analogical predication in our God talk is going to be ever in the background. That's why I wanted to kind of give you this today. Um, I have some final thoughts, um, and then maybe we'll have a few minutes for questions, if you have questions. Um, this is what I want us to ultimately grasp from this particular Sunday school. Um, I want us to ultimately grasp this as we move forward. Um, there is no genuine natural or supernatural experience of God, Revelation, that does not give way to reverent distance and silent adoration, ultimately. Yes, uh, we know God truly. We know God truly. And though we may gain much knowledge about him, even in this series, I hope, um, there is the ultimate goal of knowing our God better in order that, may, that, we, may just, that we may simply love and adore him more. Um, so how we must talk about God through what has he revealed is to, uh, through what he has revealed is, um, is genuine and it corresponds to truth about God, but it is never exhausted on the other hand or comprehended. It's rather apprehended. It should then force us, I think, on our knees in reverence and worship and hence, why analogy of language, I think, here as we go forward is right, godly, and good. So that's my plug for analogy of language. Um, so anybody have any questions? That's all I have. Any clarifications? Is the fourth option to properly talk about God just speaking Latin the whole time? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> and anything else? Okay. Who's going to pray? Seth, will you pray for us? <laughs> God, we love you and we praise you. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have not left us to grasp these things on our own, that you have 
provided us with your word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit to um, reveal these things to us in the way in which we are to relate to you and you relate to us. The, the greatest of which is when Jesus Christ assumed human nature and came and dwelt amongst us and came and lived a sinless life and died for our sins and rose again. I thank you for all of these blessed truths that you've given us and we keep them at the forefront of our minds as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth today. I pray that you bless our time together. We thank you for blessing it already. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.